Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 428. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series, our guest today is Alan Gannett. Alan Gannett is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven, a software analytics firm, and now serves as Chief Strategy Officer at Skyward, a global marketing platform. And his new book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, is the subject of our conversation today and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation titled The Creative Curve, Unplugging the Myth of the light bulb moment. Check out our website for links and ticket details. Many in our Not Old Better show Smithsonian Associates audience are focused on their second act career-wise and professionally, looking for the spark to write a hit screenplay or book or design an effective marketing campaign or start a successful company. The key, according to our guest today, technology entrepreneur Alan Gannett, is not to wait until that proverbial light bulb flashes on during a moment of inspiration. Instead, as Alan Gannett will tell us based on recent psychological research, which indicates that there is a predictable science behind success in creative endeavors. Alan Gannett calls it the creative curve, the point of optimal tension between the novel and the familiar. Alan Gannett joins us today to examine the stories in his new book, The Creative Curve of Innovators, including the Broadway team that developed Dear Evan Hansen, the founder of Reddit, the chief operating officer of Netflix, and Michelin-starred chefs to identify the common patterns behind their achievements. Their examples and lessons, says Alan Gannett, demonstrate that the ability to generate and develop creative ideas is not just the province of so-called geniuses, but within the reach of everyone. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates author interview series via internet phone, Alan Gannett. Alan Gannett, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, man. It is great to talk to you. This is going to be, this will be a wonderful interview. I'm super excited about the subject of creativity. I kind of think of myself, I suppose, in that way. Many of my audience certainly think of themselves as creative. But let's just jump in. Why don't you tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? Yeah, so my background is I used to be a big data entrepreneur. And when I was doing that, I sort of realized that Um, there's a lot of patterns in data, but there's also a lot of patterns and things we think of as organic. So we did a lot of marketing data work and we found that a lot of the things that consumers resonate with are actually quite predictable. And that on one hand maybe sounds scary, but to me it actually sounded exciting because what that means to me is that if you're in a field where you have to interact with consumers and create things for consumers, um, there's actually some science and system to it, which means it's learnable. And so I wrote this book called The Creative Curve, which is this sort of exploration of the question of whether or not you can learn to become more creative. And so I'm speaking at the Smithsonian Associates um, program, um, I think it's next week. Um, and Coming up fast. Coming up fast. And um, I'm going to be speaking about um, the book and in particular, some of the science behind flashes of genius and aha moments, which... I think are one of the phenomenon that really gets people tripped up when it comes to creativity because they seem so unexplainable, but in reality, they're actually pretty normal biology. And I think once you realize that sort of some of the most magical parts of creativity are really just our mind doing what it does, 
I think it starts to open up your eyes to the fact that creativity is something that's part of us and something that we can enhance and learn and get better at. Well, you mentioned the book, The Creative Curve. I've got a copy of it here in my hands. Thank you very much for sending that along to me. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And you, you kind of talk a little bit about this, this idea of, of, a, of a balance and this, this notion that the, the brain is maybe doing something that it might be familiar with. But there's this uh, distinction between a balance of what we might call familiarity and then novelty. And so I wonder if you'd tell us about what you mean by that, because, you know, it, it seems to be a little bit of a contradiction initially. Yeah. So one of the things when it comes to creativity, is there's a lot of myths and there's a lot of misunderstandings. And one of the ones that I think is most prevalent and I think most problematic is that we think about creativity as very intertwined with sort of radical newness, you know, creating things that are very new. And the problem with that is that that I think becomes very intimidating, very overwhelming, but it's also just wrong. And actually, when you look at history, what you find is that it's not the ideas that are the most new or the most zany or the wackiest, but they're actually the ideas that blend the familiar and the novel. So, for example, look at Apple, right? So Apple, um, think about the iPad, right? The iPad was an iPhone without a phone. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone. The iPod was like a better MP3 player. So what you see when you start looking at creative successes, you actually see much more incremental changes to a status quo than I think the sort of mythology around creativity has. And the reason why this happens, and there's all this research around this, is that consumer preference is really dictated by these two contradictory forces. On the one hand, as humans, we're wired to crave things that are familiar because things that are familiar make us feel safe, right? Think about if you went into a house you've never been in before, you went into the basement and you saw a very creepy door, right? The door would be scary. You're like, I don't want to go in that door. Something could happen. But imagine that same exact door was in your grandmother's basement it's where she stored the wine you'd be like i love this door. i'm going to go in this door so even though physically the actual physical characteristics are the exact same thing it dramatically changes our perception of it because it's familiar because our brain has learned that unfamiliar things represent risk and familiar things represent safety so the result is as humans, we have this constant urge for the familiar. We like things that are comfortable, that are comfy, that are familiar, that we've been before, seen before. But then there's this other urge, and this is where the contradiction emerges. As humans, we also were wired for this other urge, and that's called novelty seeking, where we seek out things that are new, that are different, that are unexperienced. And the reason why is pretty simple. Think about when you were, you know, your great, great, great ancestors were hunter-gatherers. And they went into a field and they saw a berry that they had never seen before. Well, that represents potential breakfast, reward, calories, food, nourishment. And so as humans, when there's things that we don't know, we, we apply this thing called a novelty bonus where we think there might be potential reward. And that novelty bonus drives us to actually go and seek things out. Now, these two things are obviously a contradiction. On one hand, we're fearful of the unfamiliar 
because of safety reasons and we seek out the familiar. On the other hand, we pursue novel things because they represent potential reward. Like those two things together do not make sense. But what it is, is that it's our brain's very elegant way of balancing risk and reward. The things we like are not things that are radically new, but rather they have one step in the familiar and one step in the novel. Think about Star Wars, it was a Western in space. Harry Potter was a very, very straightforward orphan story, but they're wizards. Some of the most important pieces of fiction are not hugely new story arcs, but rather telling story arcs that are very familiar in a new and novel way, right? Think about um, you know, West Side Story, for example, is Romeo and Juliet, right? But it's in New York. And so, so often we mistake creativity with novelty. And what creativity really is, is an ability to blend the right idea at the right time by blending the familiar and the novel. It makes a lot of sense. And the book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, is getting really excellent reviews. I think I think our audience will enjoy it. I think they'll find it very helpful. I think what will be especially interesting to our audience is this reference that you make to the Beatles and Paul McCartney and McCartney's song, Yesterday. And I wonder if you'd tell that story a little bit from the book. Yeah, this is a great, great story. So... Paul McCartney is actually the number one songwriter, number one singles of all time. He actually has more than John Lennon. And he is credited with writing the song Yesterday, which is actually the most recorded song of all time, the most covers, the most different artists who recorded it. And what's interesting, though, about the song Yesterday is that it's representative, representative of a sort of common trope when it comes to creativity. Because Paul McCartney literally dreamed the melody for yesterday in his sleep. He woke up one morning, uh, he was in London, and he woke up one morning, it was sort of a, you know, a late morning for him, and he was like, whoa, you know, I dreamed this melody, and he instantly sort of you know, memorized it. And then he actually was very anxious. He was anxious that he accidentally plagiarized it from someone because it came out of nowhere. It was this epiphany. And the story has become this sort of notion has become this sort of mythology when it comes to creativity. In fact, there's an entire academic book about the story of yesterday and the creation of yesterday because it seems so magical. But what's interesting is that when you actually look at the song yesterday, it's actually very derivative of past works um, from previous people like Carmichael, who Paul McCartney was a massive fan of. And this is not to say it was plagiarism, but rather all music is inspired by the music that's come before it. Because as humans, our brains are incredibly good at coming up with new ideas, but the ideas actually don't come out of nowhere. They come out of the ideas that have already populated our mind. And so one of the things you find I think is so interesting when you look at a lot of the research around creativity is that consumption is actually a huge part of successful creativity because for these great creators to connect the dots, to have epiphanies, well, they actually have to have the dots to connect. They have to have the raw ingredients for their mind to work on. So our right hemisphere is where creativity sort of happens, so to speak. And our right hemisphere, the type of processing that it does is right below our level of consciousness. And our right hemisphere is really focused on sort of connecting disparate ideas together. 
And it's only once an idea comes fully formed does the idea sort of rise in our consciousness and do we sort of have this little, oh, this little aha, this little light bulb moment where we experience a fully formed answer. And that's really the root of this idea of an aha moment or a flash of genius, those little ahas. But that's not something you know, magical, that's not mystical, that's just how our mind works. And the important thing, though, is that our right hemisphere, in order to actually do that work, it needs to have the mental models, the ideas, the memories that it can actually use to form together, to fuse together, to come up with that next great idea. So what you find is that consumption is a huge part of the creative process. And you look at Paul McCartney, right? Paul McCartney grew up in a musical household surrounded by musical parents. He literally played in a cover band. So yeah, he dreams about melodies and we don't, right? Um, J.K. Rowling spent her entire childhood reading and reading to get away from her fighting parents. And she had sort of a rough childhood. And that's a theme you find and in my book, I interviewed about 25 living creative greats. These are Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, Michelin star chefs. And what you find is this consistent obsession with consumption. And the interesting thing is that for the creators who, who have had these long careers, not these one and wonders, but these long careers, those creatives keep up the consumption throughout their career. They're constantly ingesting. And that's so important because that's what allows them to stay relevant, to keep their ideas fresh, to not get caught and doing the same thing over and over. So consumption is hugely important in the creative process because it feeds your mind with the raw ingredients and it allows you to continue to creating things that are right at that edge of the familiar and the novel. That is really helpful. That That's fascinating because if you, if you kind of think about it in this, in terms of consumption, continued consumption, then it might lead you to this idea that, well, creative people aren't just Born, maybe you can develop some creativity. And for my audience who's thinking about a second career, they might really be very positive about this idea that, yes, there are the McCartneys of the world, absolutely, those geniuses, but you can develop some creativity over some time. You'd agree with that. A hundred percent. And one of the things that people sort of fundamentally misunderstand is that our brain is much more malleable than people think. I think partly because we can't see it um, unless you go under an fMRI machine. It's hard for us to picture this. But there's all these studies that show that our behavior, our habits, our patterns, our the tasks we put our mind to affect the structural elements of our brain. They literally change the structure permanently of our brain. Our brain is much more like a muscle than anything else. And there are studies that show, for example, that this was obviously pre-GPS, pre-Uber, but taxi drivers, for example, the longer that they are a taxi driver, the bigger the part of the hippocampus that's had to visual navigational skills become. And they compare this to bus drivers who drive the same route every day. And the bus drivers do not have that change, no matter how long they've been driving a bus. So our mind adapts to the task we put at it. And so it's not surprising that, you know, when we look at an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old who's particularly talented at something, that we think of it as, oh, it must be natural talent. But you think about those kids often have been practicing since they were five years old. And by the time they're 18, they've been adapting their brain for 13 years, 13 years. So yeah, 
they've developed some permanent structural change to their brain. But they've done all sorts of interesting stuff, even with um, older populations where they've done memory exercises using computer programs. And they find that even small amounts of structured um, practice create long-term permanent changes to our brain. So you really have to shift your thinking about what your brain is, how it works, to much more like a muscle than sort of, you know, like your bones that are these sort of fixed things that you can't change too much. Our guest, of course, is Alan Gannett. Alan Gannett is the author of the new book, The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. Alan Gannett will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here Tuesday, February 18th. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Alan Gannett. I I just have one final question. So in addition to consumption, what advice would you give to our audience about becoming more creative as as they age, as we age? One of the most important things um, at any age, I think you have to be more intentional as you get older, is building a creative community. I think oftentimes when it comes to creativity, we sort of buy into the notion of the solo genius, the solo creator, but that's just fanciful. I mean, Steve Jobs, you know, in the last you know 10 years of his life had literally thousands of employees, but even early on he had Steve Wozniak because he needed that help on the engineering town. They actually raised money very early on. So you had venture capitalists and advisors who were supporting him and multiple employees within the first few months of existence. So, you know, when you think of creativity, it really is a communal activity and you have to actually put yourself in the middle of those communities, right? If you want to become a great fiction writer, you should surround yourself with communities and go participate in the I Was a Writer workshop or go be in New York and spend time with other writers. But those are the people who are going to help promote you. They're going to teach you um, so the best practices of your field, they're going to support you. They're going to give you the emotional support. And those things are so important. You can't just create in a vacuum. And so I think when you're young, it's sort of easy to uproot your life for your creative field. I think as you get older, you have to be much more intentional. And while I think the internet can make this somewhat easier, I still think face-to-face time is really important. I think making that time for yourself to be part of a creative community is essential. Alan Gannett, what a pleasure it is to speak with you. You're really just doing some interesting work, and you have this fascinating background, too. We're going to put links up to where our audience can find out more information about you because, again, fascinating background in history. We'll also put links up to where people can find out more information about your your excellent new book, The Creative Curve. But Alan Gannett, going to be at Smithsonian Associates coming up here February 18th. Thank you so much. You know, we'd love to have you back sometime, too, Alan Gannett. So thanks for today. and. Maybe thanks for future time with us, too. Love it. Thanks, Paul. My thanks to author Alan Gannett, who will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates program titled The Creative Curve, Unplugging the Myth to the Lightbulb Moment. Check out our website for links and ticket details. As always, my thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And my ongoing thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please keep your show ideas and emails coming to me at info at notold-better.com. Remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.